We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're exploring architecture competitions and if the process can help make projects better. Our guest in this episode is Scott Barmforth from Terroir, who have offices in New South Wales, Tasmania and Copenhagen in Denmark. Scott shares with us how Terroir took on competitions at the beginning of their practice's life to explore design ideas that built their portfolio on an international stage and the intricacies embodied in competitions and how they're run. I'll now pass over to Abby Hibbard, who is an Imagine Committee member based in Tasmania. Let's jump in. Alrighty, g'day Scott. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Hearing Architecture Podcast. How are you going? Yeah, good thanks Abby and, and thank you for the invitation to participate. It's a great series. No worries, thank you. So yourselves at Tarawa have a pretty impressive repertoire of architectural competition work under your belt, both built and unbuilt. Can you share a little bit about what informs your approach to entering competitions and how you might use them as a tool to find new markets and or for active research? Um, look, over the years of the practice, we've tended to sort of look upon competitions as really important work and it's probably more in the sort of rear vision mirror that you see the value of the competitions in how they're, they're developing themes and ideas in practice that ultimately may find themselves into realised projects. Or interestingly, they sort of reappear as other competition entries many years later. Yeah, and would it be fair to say that you'd usually seek out or go for competitions that may benefit future projects that you take on and or expand upon ideas you've already explored previously? Uh, there's definitely been times where we have sort of targeted competitions with very particular agendas, and I can sort of talk about that. Um, but then there are other sort of times where we probably are doing similar types of competitions or similar projects um, because of an innate interest in that or sort of a, a developing idea of how to sort of respond to, say for instance, sort of um, you know, dealing with sort of significant buildings in park-like settings seems to be a, a recurring theme. And I believe that you've entered quite a number of international design competitions. Are there any that have acted as a catalyst for future work or for Terroir as a practice to expand? Yeah, definitely. One of the um, first competitions we did was a competition for the Staten's Natural History Museum in Copenhagen, um, a wonderful garden setting. It's, it's actually a botanical garden that's not far from Norraport Station in the middle of Copenhagen. So. Um, beautiful setting and it's one of the sort of Denmark's most comprehensive sort of collection of plants. Um, a real quiet space in the otherwise sort of bustling CBD or centre of, um, of Old Town, Copenhagen. Um, and it has it's a place that had this magical quality to it. Sort of, it was a big wall around the outside so when you're inside the park you really felt sort of a, an escapist from the, sort of the, the city surround. Um, and the project there was an, an open international competition. We did it back in 2009 and we did it when we sort of had already started setting up some connections over to Copenhagen. We hadn't yet set up an office there, but it was sort of a, a sense of, I suppose, strategy to sort of probably set up a, um, an office 
over there at some stage and using some competitions like this as a leverage to sort of get a, a foothold there. I don't think we would have done it had we sort of not had that intent, um, nor would we have been lucky enough to get the prize that we did had we sort of um, just stumbled upon it. So. And can you tell us a bit about the, the process of that competition and um, perhaps the stakeholders that were involved? Yeah, it was um, a really important competition for the gardens because um, incredible heritage significance in the gardens. It was bringing together sort of three institutions that are already in the gardens but operating out of standalone sort of heritage buildings. The Botanical Museum and Library, the Geological Museum and the Zoological Museum. And in a way, this project sort of suggested that you had to sort of put a building underground um, because that was the way you could respect the innate character of the park and the qualities of these sort of heritage buildings. But in doing so, you had to give some significance for those institutions and, and chart a way that they could sort of see a future um, in, in sort of that, that setting. We were lucky enough that it was an open competition and we were awarded a prize. It was sort of a, um, a reasonable sort of award. I think it equated to around about $20,000 Australian, which to us at that sort of stage of practice meant a lot. Um, but what it enabled us to give some presence over there and through that and through sort of Gerard doing some work um, with sort of some of the universities over there, we were eventually able to use that as a springboard to um, set up an office in, in Copenhagen. And did the process of working on this project reveal something that you might not have done had you had a direct client-architect relationship on a more typical project that wasn't a competition? It's a good question in reflection. It probably enabled us to follow a process that we were unrestricted by having a sort of a client. And by that I mean we sort of had a great fun doing it. I remember sort of the time where we were developing new technologies within the office, new skill sets in terms of uh, computer technology and 3D sort of graphics and, and things. Um, so we're able to sort of explore that and that helped us lead to a sort of solution. We also used to bring in the most absurd references. Our scheme was very much influenced by Jornutz and Silkberg Museum, which is an unbuilt project from the early 1960s, through to sort of talking about the way that our sort of bulbs, because our project essentially involved putting everything underground, we thought of them as sort of these large bulbs containing the functional program. But out of that, these spires would grow. Um, and those spires we sort of would jokingly sort of refer to as like spring onions coming up out of the ground. And it's very rare that you can sit down with a client and talk about those types of references at such an early stage of a project. Ultimately, those spires were something that broke the rule um, and why we sort of were awarded a prize but unfortunately weren't sort of following through to the second stage of the, the process and uh, the competition. But we thought it important because sort of to have a presence within Copenhagen from outside the bounds of the park, we thought these delicate spires would really sort of engage with the other spires that sort of dominated the sort of Copenhagen skyline. So um, it was an interesting way of working also when we were sort of defamiliarised with the context. So we knew enough to deal with it. Jared had been over there a number of times already, so we had a good sense of, of the place of this park within the broader context of the city. But also we could sit back and make some judgments such as this sort of observation of the spies of Copenhagen that maybe you don't always get when you're sort of so in tune with the sort of the context. Um, because the botanical gardens are such an important part of the urban life of Copenhagen, we're really mindful not to change that character going forth. We wanted to contribute something that would really define the future of the botanical gardens and these three institutions. 
but it just felt sort of a, a great responsibility that the history of the park and the way that the people of Copenhagen use it had to be preserved. So thinking about the flow-on effect of competitions and um, particularly the importance of context and heritage, as you've spoken about, can you give us an example of a project where ideas or processes have been translated from one that came before? Most definitely. The Earlier on this year, we were fortunate enough to be invited to participate in a competition in Tasmania in, in the city of Launceston. The project's a really interesting one for the city council. It involves the city park, which is a beautiful park just on the edge of the CBD in Launceston. And within that park on a corner is the Albert Hall, a magnificent building that dates back from the late 1890s. Now, having lived in Launceston for a few years studying, I just thought the St Albert Hall was sort of a grand building that had jumped over the street into the park. But when we started researching the project, we understood that the Albert Hall was built as part of a major international exhibition. And it was probably about 20% of the building that was left, and the rest of the, the 80% was a series of temporary pavilions um, that made an incredible number of people come to Launceston in the late 1800s. Um, so with that sort of inextricable link between the building and the park, we, we started off this invited competition, I think there were about four firms invited, um, to rediscover the ways that the hall can be connected to the park. Um, the paradox sort of was that there was already a building there that was trying to do that. It was a 1980s extension on the sort of park side of the hall that provided a, a rather small foyer, a meeting room, and some function areas and cafes that had been well past their use-by date. So a lot of the project was to take away what was there and to reinstate um, facilities that really met the contemporary needs, a larger foyer, improved meeting facilities and, and a brand new cafe. Yeah, and w was there a paradox at all between the briefing requirements that you received and then contextual considerations? Yeah, it was probably the idea of putting all this functional brief back between the building and the park. And, and our sole idea from the outset was to really reconnect the building back through the park by imagining the park coming back up to the building. Uh, a connection that was very tentative uh, at best, but probably sort of lost since the 1980s extension had been added on. Um, so the more we sort of worked through that idea, I think the more we sort of understood that we could introduce new functions back in there, and a larger hole, but we thought about it in the qualities of the park, not as an extension to the building or not as a third piece of building that was put between the existing Albert Hall and the city park. And so did this competition involve a design response? And if so, what other things drove that design intent? And were you trying to kind of tick boxes of a brief or did you end up actually challenging the proposed thinking? It was a competition that probably didn't have the sort of the structure that a lot of the other international competitions that we've entered had. It was an aspirational competition. They were looking for ideas and responses. To that, the council should be really congratulated by sort of taking this approach. Quite often in competitions, I think it's really important that the client understands what a competition will deliver. They tend to sort of lose a sense of control, they've got to have their brief really firmly intact, and they've got to understand how the competition will place them in the overall life of a project. We've had some instances where clients see competitions as a way to fast track through to, say, the development application stage, which, which really doesn't work as all the listeners would, would understand, you've got to go through a process where you're actually engaging with that client and competitions are of course often done um, with a sort of removed connection to the client. But back onto sort of the Launceston one, 
they're really looking for approaches and ideas. They had a number of technical criteria we had to address because this was a very old building and involved level changes. There are a lot of accessibility issues that had to be resolved, contemporary ways of servicing and meeting the demands of, of many different users, whether it's small groups or, or large groups that use the hall, um, and, and other back of house servicing. So there's a lot of technical sort of areas that, that we had to sort of explore. Um, but above all else, we kept on looking at the idea of really connecting the building back to the park in a really meaningful way. And, and I think council got that idea. Interestingly, when we were working through the scheme, we really, I think, solved the interior in the competition phase quite well. We were drawing a building that almost felt as though it was part of the park just coming up to the, the existing building. But we were really having a struggle in the very short period of time we were given for the competition on the exterior. Uh, that led to us to ultimately make the decision to present three different types of exteriors as our submission. Um, of course there were no real rules on what you had to provide or, or didn't have to provide so that allowed us to sort of have that flexibility. We presented a very sort of orthogonal one, we presented a few that had slight hints of an organic approach um, and one that had an ang angular approach actually. And just evidence that to council to say this is how we'd like to work with them to really understand the identity of the building. But behind that, we'd already laid the groundwork of what this, the strong idea was, which is this connection to the park. And they really understood that approach. And thankfully, uh, at the end of the competition, when we were awarded the project, we had that time to sit down with them and almost unpack. And a lot of the work we went back to was work we'd done in the testing phase of the competition that we'd probably discarded and perhaps didn't have the, the um, uh, courage to put it up as our eventual scheme, uh, but was really sitting in the sort of backstalls there and we were able to bring that forth and have a really engaging discussion with council early on. Um, and then it's developed since then. So it was really interesting to look back uh, over what many years, uh, 12 years between those competitions and along the way between we'd actually done some other garden based competitions as it turns out and look at the different ways we were dealing with that dilemma I suppose of having a significant heritage building within a park setting quite often an urban park. So we did a piece of work just by ourselves to sort of reflect on that, which was going back to the Staten's Natural History Museum, where our idea was very much to bring the qualities of the park, but place that underground and have fun with this lyricism of, of imagining a building like spring onions growing up out of the, the space that sat in the foreground to these heritage buildings. And then some other projects where we thought about how to sort of couple a build project up to a building and, and have that engage with the park. And at Albert Hall in Launceston, it was very much about thinking from the benefit of the park. Uh, we said from the outset to the council, we thought the heroes already existed, which was the park and the existing heritage building. Um, and our job was to make sense of those in, in a really sensitive but, but positive way, because this was a major building for the community and major building for council. So we didn't have the ability to put it underground as we'd done previously at the Staten's Natural History Museum. Um, but we had to work with the, sort of a language of the building that responded to the character of the park. We pushed it and pulled it and, and we're really excited by the uh, really organic shape that's arrived, but very, one that's very much at home within that garden setting. Hmm. Yeah, I think it really speaks a lot about uh, sticking to your design intent and, like you say, having the courage to kind of to, to see something through that does align with, with the values of your practice. So that's really great. 
So thinking about your work more broadly then, what do you see as the obvious benefits and or difficulties of architectural competitions uh, as a way to get projects started? Look, I think they're, they're magnificent vehicles uh, to promote design uh, when you're in the process of seeking to uh, put yourself forward um, in a procurement sense. Ultimately, that's our greatest weapon, uh, which is our design thinking and our design intelligence. It's really dependent on clients and structures being put in place uh, behind competitions because competitions are competitions that have many different variables from juries to ideas. We were just talking recently about the the way that you never really know whether juries reach a consensus on a solution or vote. And that can have a difference because sometimes if you get a group of people, the consensus solution might not be the most heroic or the most sort of um, disruptive scheme. Uh, Whereas sometimes you can sort of balance that out if you have a sort of vote situation in the jury. So there's a lot of variables in competitions. Uh, We approach them, I think, with the mindset that we want to win them, but we don't need to win them. There are many practices, and having a a foray into the the, the European context, there are many practices that survive via these pre-qualifications and competitions. They're incredibly structured competitions. The deliverables and the requirements and the timing is all very much laid out um, very accurately for for people to set up a business, and particularly young architects who might be balancing some teaching with that work. There is a a vehicle there to to run an office, basically, on doing um, competitions. That model, of course, in Australia is not there um, and would, would probably sort of struggle, although sort of some young practices do get a, an amazing foothold by um, participating in competitions. And by virtue of what they are, that's the opportunity for younger, less established practices to really challenge the, the bigger, more established practices in a, in a competition setting. So it's a fantastic vehicle for, for ideas and to promote growth within the um, architectural industry is really good. And have you had any experience with competitions that bring on architectural advisors as part of that process? Yeah, we're probably seeing that more in the smaller competitions that we're participating in now. Of course, in the larger international competitions, the the jury is generally comprised of um, mostly architects or definitely uh, a strong presence of architects. Uh, and then may have a series of technical support people providing specialist expertise to the jury in that regard. But in the Albert Hall one in Launceston that I spoke about, the the council and the project manager that organised that competition deliberately sought an independent architectural person to, to inform that jury of the architectural merits. And we find that really interesting because you've got to have a sort of a dialogue that is both to the client, in this case it was the council, but this architect uh, came on board and and we had a wonderful dialogue after we were eventually chosen and and had a fantastic discussion about sort of the merits that they saw in our scheme, that some of which we hadn't even seen. So it offers another insight at a very early stage of the project. So it was a really rewarding process and one that I'd, I'd encourage, particularly the the smaller competitions as they're being set up to really consider the value of that expert input. We found there's sometimes a trap of clients getting locked into an image quite early that comes out of competitions. Presently there's many tools available and and clients are demanding of increasingly precise renders, uh, CGI renders, 
uh, walkthroughs and other sort of vehicles that they can understand uh, each and every um, firm's competition entry. Uh, but of course they tend to sometimes get locked into things they see. Whereas from our side of the fence, quite often we're trying to describe an atmosphere and experience of a space, they're looking straight to the detail. Um, and that can sometimes be a real challenge uh, in unlocking a client from a perceived idea of what their project will be. Uh, sometimes that can get out into media circles and things like that in a very sort of um, positive way from clients, putting um, it out there that this project is progressing, um, that's going through a rigorous process that competitions do open up to, and that's important particularly for public projects. But there's just that slight trap that you could get led into a, an image and find yourself actually designing away or against that image that you might have done very quickly. Uh, without the level of rigour and research that you, you just don't have when you're doing quad competitions, which are generally really succinct. The other thing that competitions we try to achieve is a, a way of building a relationship when you're not having that direct dialogue with a client. Uh, you've got to show a bit of yourself in competitions and, and show the client that you're really thinking about their project. Ultimately, the ones that we have fun doing are the ones that we're really connected into that we have time as a practice, particularly Gerard and I as sort of the, the thought leaders of the practice, to, to really commit that time. Generally one of us is, is leading that project um, and the other ones running around the outside sort of offering assistance and comment and critique to really thresh out the, sort of the, the ideas of the, the competition um, within the practice. So it's really demonstrating the client how you will be to work with, because that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to establish a relationship that their client feels comfortable in the direction you're going, but also the types of, of discussions and, and testing that will happen uh, once you're working more closely with them after the competition. So we really feel it's an important aspect to, to show yourself and to reflect your, your way of working and your approach to the project and the, the process that you'd set up to manage that process. And is there anything you can think of that would potentially make that process more, more transparent? We've probably found that the competitions that are judged blindly, we don't necessarily do our best in. It's probably where we've submitted something maybe under a competition but have the ability to talk to that, maybe by way of an interview because then you can really strengthen the core idea underneath them. Hopefully that's a lesson to us to sort of improve how we present our ideas in a, in a blind process, but we've just felt that if we could get close to the client even in a presentation at the end of a competition, uh, it's really handy for um, the success ratio uh, we've found, but um, that's not always the case, um, can't always happen. The other important thing is quite often competitions carry with them all those other technical requirements you have to submit, your quality assurance manuals and, and other things, and especially fees. And some of the best projects we've been involved with them, both um, sometimes being an advocate to, to agencies who are setting up uh, competitions or participating in competitions, is when there's a two envelope system. You submit your ideas, your competition entry, and then you also submit your fees separately. Uh, so ultimately, the people that are really looking at your ideas and competition may not be the people that have been persuaded one way or another by a number at the bottom of a, a large fee schedule. 
that are quite often involves not only your fees but those of other consultants and things at a stage of the project that's really hard for them to quantify their, their actual scope. So the best ones we've found uh, are those that um, with some expertise prior to the competition, the client is aware of what the likelihood of the fees to be, they've got that figure almost hidden away, you're asked to submit your fee in a, an envelope, um, that only goes to uh, certain people, not everyone sees it. And then if you're the winner of the qualitative competition process, they then might sort of open up the drawer, pull out your fee, and see where it sits against the predetermined fee. Um, and that's been a really good process, I think, and a fair process in terms of uh, keeping the playing field level in terms of the ideas and the qualitative uh, material submitted. Um, and ultimately having a sort of a fair and reasonable sense of what real fees should be both for the sort of architects and the other broader consultant team. Nowadays in the practice we tend to make time and, and commit the proper resources to do competitions. Uh, that still means there's a sort of a flurry of activity and generally a few extra hours uh, that come together uh, by those taking part. Um, in the early days of the practice we were quite often doing competitions off the side of the desk so to speak, after hours or um, in, in, you know, over weekends and, and things like that. And then because we're in multiple locations in those days, it was Hobart and Sydney offices, we tend to use email as a way of communicating that between sort of at times multiple people. It might be Jared and I, it might be others that are involved in that process. And um, interestingly, when we were doing an invited master's uh, program at RMIT uh, now many years ago, 15 years ago, we were able to go back into a competition that we did. It was a major uh, competition for the Prague National Library. Um, Zaha Hadid was the, the chief juror in that project. And what we were able to do is almost splice together the inboxes of three people working on that project. And by having a sequential the history of all emails uh, that went into that sort of project, we could see that process written before us. So there was right from the, sort of, the time the person submitted the entry fee to enter that competition, right through all these random ideas and the references that we were flicking backwards and forwards. Stuff that happens in real time when you're running a practice or doing a project or particularly doing a competition, we just found this method of collating all these together because they happen to exist in our shared inboxes was a really cathartic experience. It also showed to us the way we worked and, and probably unashamedly sort of bringing in obtuse references like I mentioned at Staten's Natural History Museum of, of the, imagining the bulbs growing in the garden and growing to a scale that they become a building and then becoming a spire in the, the overall cityscape of, of Copenhagen. That was some of the sort of the quirks that we were able to see back to ourselves by going back through all the old emails in the, the Prague competition, which had happened a few years earlier than the, the Settlers Natural History Museum. So it's a really interesting process, and I think competitions generally allow you to learn how you work in a, a more insightful way than perhaps um, over other projects that might have a, a longer time exposure to them such as sort of the you day-to-day know, -day projects within the office. Um, you're generally an intense flurry of activity and that calls on an intuition that I think you, you really come to value in terms of um, when you look back and say, why did I make that decision? You are generally using a lot of previous research or previous history in working to, to inform the decisions you're making because you've got to make decisions that ultimately you might have a dollar with a client 
about, but you've got to make them in isolation. So you, you, you're bringing in many values uh, and making a judgment call on that as you go almost on a daily, hourly, minute by minute basis when you're doing a competition. Great. Thanks so much, Scott, for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for sharing your stories. Thanks, Abby, and it's been great to talk to you. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to our guests in this episode, Scott Barmforth from Terawa. We're very grateful for your time and we can't wait to see what you produce in your next competition, either in Australia or abroad. We'd also like to thank Abby Hibbard from Imagine in Tasmania for organising and moderating the interview. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make, so if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy, and the Imagine production team was Abby Hibbard. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.